Good morning, Door Creek Church. How are we doing? There are a lot of you. Packers must not be playing today. Great to see you. Uh, so if you're new here uh, on the Sprecher Road campus, my name is Ryan. Uh, I'm on the teaching team here, and normally uh, you can find me up at the DeForest campus, but it's, it's just, just a pleasure to be here with y'all. Can I say that? I'm not from the South. It's not, we don't have a word for like you, but more than one of you. Y'all. Let's just, let's, let's rise up, Wisconsin, and take over y'all. Uh, so we're, we're talking about work today, because we're asking the question, what matters? And we're going to God's word, the Bible, for answers to that question, and we find out that our work matters. It matters to God, and it matters to us. So did you know today is a work day for me? You're like, I, what? What? It's, it's Sunday. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's a work day. Uh, I had a conversation with someone that... I was honestly, guys, really kind of like offended and got really defensive because uh, I always joke about, you know, pastors only work one day a week, but this couple that I met like actually believe that. So like, so what do you even do? Like, I would love to have your job. Like, whoa, I didn't know what to say. You know, we get really defensive about uh, our jobs. Uh, so what I, I'm just going to say to you what I should have said to them. Are you ready? Uh, so we, we provide uh, a, a place for people to connect with God, thousands of people in three different locations across Madison, theologically astute childcare for 400 kids every single Sunday, uh, a, a concert that's God-focused, and, and coffee, and we do it all for free. There you go. What do you do for your job? Uh, okay, I'm, I'm off of my soapbox now. So uh, when I was a kid and, and growing up, um, I didn't get work. You know, I, like adults around me took it very seriously. I was like, that, it's just so much better to play you know, and I would observe adults uh, doing their work thing, but it didn't all come together for me until I read this book. Have you seen this? It's What Do People Do All Day? I feel like I'm in a classroom. Can everyone see? Uh, It's What Do People Do All Day by the author Richard Scarry. It was written in 1968. What? You're laughing at me. It's a great book, you guys. It shows us kind of how the world works. Are you ready for this? Uh, let's, let's check it out here. So it, it's kind of like this. It's these anthropomorphic like animals running around doing people stuff. Uh, so let's zoom in here. We've got the dentist, you know, taking care of the beaver's teeth. We've got the street cleaner who honestly looks a little happier than the street cleaners that I've seen. Uh, and this is my favorite. We've got the automobile salesman being a little aggressive, you know, sorry, any car salesman. This is Richard Scarry, not me. But you get, you get this idea of the way the world is supposed to work. It's, it's picturesque. Everyone's cheerful, like that the work you do doesn't get undone by your coworkers or your children, hello, or, you know, whatever. There, there's no frustration. It's just the way it's supposed to be. But I have found, I don't know if you've observed this, that work doesn't work like that. Can I get an amen? So uh, there's this really snarky artist, uh, his name is Ruben Bowling, and he created uh, like a 21st century, more kind of adult version of uh, what do people do all day. Uh, so let's, I just want to show you, because it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, so it kind of looks the same, you know, as you, you back up, but when you zoom in, you, you get a sense of how the world really works. You've got the brick and mortar dismantler. So here's this shopkeeper selling books, but Amazon is coming and taking away all of his business, right? Uh, We've got the fart sound app maker. (laughs) 
So, like, that's someone's job, you guys, you know? You don't raise your hand, but have you paid money for a fart sound app maker? Like, someone legitimately wants flatulence on your phone, and we pay for that for some reason. Uh, we've got the Rage Pundit, right? So that's, you know, talk radio. Uh, this is my favorite. We've got, um, <laughs> we've got someone going to school and their helicopter parent chasing them down with a lunch bag with a little heart on it. Like, this... This gets us a little bit closer to the real world, right? Uh, when I was a kid, I thought work was kind of simple, and yeah, you do your job, and it makes the world a better place. That's, what, that's the kind of picture we get in Genesis chapter 1. But as I grew up, I realized that work actually doesn't work like that. And I, I really realized this uh, when I was at work in one of my first jobs. I was working in the produce department of a grocery store in Minneapolis, and one of the coolest things was you know, get there super early, 4.30 in the morning, and you set it all up. So you, get, you set up the greens, and you kind of work your way down. And, and by the time you're done, an hour and a half later, it's just pristine. It looks beautiful. You know? uh, there's like mist on all the vegetables, and, and it's about to get trampled by people you know, doing their grocery shopping. But for that moment, you're like, ah, I've, I did this. This was my job. Uh, and I had one of those moments, and I went to the back room. And my boss, his name was Don, he was a Vietnam vet, uh, and, and he, he, you know, he didn't talk a lot, and so you got this picture, that he's just super wise, but then when he opened his mouth, you realized, no, he, he wasn't, and he came <laughs> into the back room often after we did this beautiful work out there, and he would just be like furious because, you know, the roll bags were empty somewhere, you know? Or the little twist ties weren't there. Like, he would just swear and storm off, and we're all like, oh my gosh, I'm 15, you know? Like, yeah, take it easy. Uh, there's, there's a rumor that Don actually attacked a, a vendor, a, a vendor uh, who's trying to sell something with a watermelon knife, which is like a machete. It's, it's a rumor. I'm not sure if it was true, but work, work doesn't work the way it should. Uh, I don't know if you've encountered um, this, like, discrimination in the workplace, you know, where perfectly qualified people are being passed up or, or not hired because of the color of their skin or because of their gender. Um, I don't know if you've experienced uh, this weird feeling that you get when you encounter an industry that exists that, like, shouldn't exist. Like, in a good world, it shouldn't exist. Like, so there's this billboard that I drive by when I bring my kids to school, um, it's, it's a billboard advertising a, a rape uh, crisis like hotline, you know, for, for rape victims. So it's weird. It's like, oh, I'm really glad someone is doing that. God bless them. But like, wait, why is that a thing? You know? Something is broken in our world. That that's, that's someone's job and career to provide that kind of care. Divorce lawyers, child protective services, there's, there are bubbles that grow up and burst, leaving uh, stock markets that crash and entire businesses that shut down with lost jobs. Like, why is work so hard? Why on Sunday afternoon do we feel the looming cloud of Monday coming, you know? Why is it so hard? What's going on here? Why is the stress and anxiety and the pressure of work killing me and, and taking me away from family and health and hobbies and all those things that I care about so deeply. So what do we do when work doesn't work? And that's the question we're going to try to move toward a biblical answer to 
uh, today. So first, we want to understand what happened to work. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to try to understand what happened to work. Then we're going to go to Ecclesiastes and ask the question, how does that affect us in our work? And finally, we're going to go to Jesus and ask, can work work again? So let's open our Bibles, if you've got one, to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have one, we have some in the back. Uh, the hardcover ones stay here. You're welcome to use them. The softcover ones take home if you don't have one. Uh, you can also use your phone or, or whatever as well. So Genesis chapter 3, we're not going to have the words here. We want to dig in to the Bible together. What we find is that Adam and Eve, created by God to co-rule, not dominate, but rule, be responsible for and steward God's good creation, taking care of animals, creating cities and societies for human flourishing, uh, and to do it all in the, um, under the umbrella of God's protection and his care. But what did they do? They seized autonomy for themselves by taking that forbidden fruit, rebelling against God, and trying to define what was right and good on their own terms. And so, this is what happened in the moment after they did that. Uh, chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. They'd already been naked. What this is saying is that they, uh, they, where they were naked and had no shame, they were now covered in, in shame. They realized what their nakedness meant. So they sewed fig leaves together, and made coverings for themselves. And this gets at the heart of what's going on, of what happened to work. That, that there are internal forces working against us where we actually work against ourselves. And that, that's what this shame thing is happening. So this marks a very first time in all of creation because so far, what was work about? It was about making the world a better place, tapping into the raw potential of God's goodness and using our God-given creativity and strength and skills to make it even better. But this is the first time that, that Adam and Eve, in their sewing project, they did work that wasn't about making the world a better place. It was about covering their shame and insecurity. And how much of our work, how much of our effort is spent on making us look better to other people. Tim Keller picks up on this in his amazing book, Every Good Endeavor, which I would highly recommend. Uh, if you're not a reader, get the Audible version. It's 20 bucks. You can finish it off in about two weeks' worth of commutes, give or take. He said this, Adam and Eve each became desperate to control what the other knew, to hide and create facades to block the other's gaze. This mistrust and fear quickly led to friction and anger as it now does in all relationships. We are working against ourselves. And we see how this plays out in God's very chilling description to Eve of what home life work would, would be like now that they were outside of God's care and protection. In verse 16 of chapter 3, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. Your painful, sorry, with painful labor, you will give birth to children. And then there's this weird thing that he said that scholars have been wrestling about what this means. It says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. 
So there's a lot of debate on what exactly that means. And we don't have time. That's like another sermon. I can tell you, though, what it doesn't mean is that uh, husbands have permission to be jerks in the home. It, it doesn't mean that, guys. But what it does mean is there's conflict and turmoil in marriages. What it, what it means is that there is chaos in our hearts that leaks over and creates chaos in our homes. Whether you're husband, wife, mother, father, son, daughter, whatever. In whatever situation you find yourself, there's wreckage in our hearts that creates wreckage in our homes. But there's also this pain. It's about this physical and emotional hurt that comes in home life. And, and any caregiver or stay-at-home parent or grandparent that takes care of grandkids or whatever, you, you totally get this. You don't need me to, to remind, this, uh, remind you of this. That there's physical pain, there's risk, there's danger, there's turmoil in the home. There's competition, resentment that can wreak havoc in our families. And we've seen that play out in our culture. So we see that there are internal forces where we work against ourselves, but we're also going to see that there are external forces where the world works against us, that we are in some way uh, going against the grain of the universe in our work. So we pick up here in Genesis 3, verse 17, where God turns his attention to Adam, and he says, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And anyone who's tried to till a garden knows exactly uh, what that means. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. And he goes on, but you get the idea. So painful toil in work outside the home, painful toil in child ring. It's actually the same word in the Hebrew. And, and what we can't miss is that there's actually this really strong connection in the Bible uh, describing the kind of pain of childbearing, uh, of, of labor and delivery and child rearing, and connecting that to the pain that we feel as we go about our lives and we try to do the work that we need to do. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, Paul the Apostle picks up on this, and he says that all of creation is groaning with this pain, the travail of childbirth until now. It's this kind of like, how long does this, is this going to last kind of pain? Have you felt that? Like, how long until I can finally graduate? How long until the kids are finally out of the house? Or at least, how long until they're sleeping three hours in a row. My goodness, right? How long until I can finally retire? How long until my boss retires, right? <laughs> it's this how long kind of pain. When is this finally going to be over? And that's the reality of the work that we do every single day in the home and out of it. Tim Keller gives this quote that I love. He says, companies assemble teams to work furiously for months or years to give birth to new products or ventures, which may die a quick death on the marketplace. Star football players often suffer the effects of injuries throughout their lives. Brilliant entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs get thrown out of companies when times get tough and few get invited back like Jobs was. The weeds, the computer viruses, the corruption scandals come back with a vengeance. Research into the properties of the atom 
become the basis for the atomic bomb. In other words, work, even when it bears fruit, is always painful, often miscarries, and sometimes kills us. Welcome to church. <laughs> so, before you quit your job, um, I think what we need to do, before we give up or we try to fix this, is we need to understand that because this is the reality of work in the real world under the curse of sin, that there's actually a pattern that we fall into. There, there are kind of two main uh, roads that most humans for most of history have gone down. So we want to recognize what those roads are and find ourselves on either of those roads and then try to see if there's actually a better way forward. So we're going to ask the question, how does the pain of work affect us? And we're going to jump to the book of Ecclesiastes for the answer. So Ecclesiastes is uh, right after Proverbs. So if you have a Bible, paper Bible, just go to Psalms and just keep going to the right. Stop when you hit Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon, who is this, this wise sage, like this poet king. And, and the perspective he has in Ecclesiastes is a, a little bleak. It's a little cynical, but that's to draw us in to some real profound wisdom that, that you and I just miss as we go about our daily lives. So we get this picture. He's kind of like this old man who's seen life play out, and he's asking us to sit down and vex over these very important questions with him. So Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 Verse 5, he gives us this riddle. So we have to pay attention. He said, Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Do, do you get a sense of what he's getting at here? You see the riddle? So we're asking, how does the pain of work affect us? Well, first of all, he shows us that we can become unmotivated in our work. So he talks about hands three times. He talks about folded hands, a handful, and handfuls. So this first picture of folded hands, what, what is this? When do you fold your hands? Well, when you're resting, right? You're taking a nap, right? So uh, either on the couch or in the hammock or whatever. It could be behind your head or on your lap or like my grandpa Thompson, you know, with, on his gut with a bottle of beer and kind of nestled there. Um, you get the idea. This is, this is like rest. But, but go back and look because it's not, it's not that simple. Who, who does this? A fool. A fool does this. And what's the result? It's, it's ruin, right? So a fool folds his hands and comes to ruin. What, what's he saying? Is this... Is this a picture of someone taking a well-deserved break after a long, hard day at work? No, no, no. This is something else, something that we would call laziness or apathy or being unmotivated. It, there's, there's, a, there's an element of like irresponsibility. It's like, I know I should be doing something, but I would rather just sit here where it's comfortable and take a break. So why would someone do this? Or, or maybe I should ask, why do we do this? Because we all do this. Why are we at times lazy? What's going on? Well, it could be that we need um, either a stick or a carrot, 
right? We need a kick in the pants or we need some sort of enticing offer to, to get us motivated to do the work that we need to do. And, and most of our uh, businesses, organizations, companies, whatever, even in the church world, most of our motivation is done with sticks and carrots. But I don't think that works for a lot of us. Why is that? Well, because laziness doesn't, isn't just about being lazy. So often it is. Sometimes it's more than that. So an example uh, kind of came to life for us recently in our family. So anyone, any users of the Nextdoor app here? A few people. Uh, so I got this notification on my phone from someone in our neighborhood up in DeForest. Bobcat spotted. Oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, hi, friends and neighbors. Just a friendly reminder to keep an eye on your little fur friends. I'm assuming they're talking about pets, not children. Anyway, a relatively large bobcat ran in front of my husband's truck in the middle of the afternoon this week on River Road. Like, wow, that's just down the road from us. Maybe the road work over there has them moving about a bit more than usual during the daytime hours. And there's this little like, I don't know, emoji. It's great. I don't know. So I made the mistake of telling this to my kids. Hey, guys, there's a bobcat outside. What? So uh, guess who didn't take out the trash that whole week? <laughs> My kids. Like they chose to literally stay inside and fold their hands on the couch because there might be a bobcat outside. And I don't know if you've read through Proverbs. There's this proverb, uh, chapter 22, 13, something to the effect of uh, a fool says, there's a lion out in the streets. I'm not going to go outside of my house because I might get eaten to death. That's literally what was happening in our family. And sometimes fear can cause us to be unmotivated. So I was talking with this guy who um, lost his job recently. Total shock. Was not expecting it at all. So a few days after he found out, we were having lunch, and I was like, so what are you looking for in a new company? Like, what, what, what's going on? He's like, I'm not really looking right now. He said, honestly, I, like, sure, I'll, I will get a job. I know I will eventually. Uh, I'm going to do good work for them, but I'm not going to put my heart into it. Honestly, what I'm really looking for is a paycheck and health care for my family. He said he was afraid of getting rejected again. Fear can be a powerful demotivator for us. But not just fear. I mean, other things too. Just disillusionment and frustration. Like, have you ever put in, like, way, like, above and beyond uh, at work, or maybe to get something off the ground only to have it shut down by someone? Or have you, have you had maybe a dream or a vision in your heart, a business idea, or something that's really important to you that you have maybe started in fits and starts, but you, you realize that you don't have the capital or the relationships or the time to get it off the ground? We can give up. We can get fed up. And sure, we'll still kind of go to work, but we're, we're just kind of punching in and punching out, right? Because inside, our hands are folded, We've given up. And, and I don't know, if that's you, you might need to connect. You might need to connect with the work underneath your work. Like maybe, maybe just making the connection with like, am I just pouring coffee or am I creating an environment for people to connect? Maybe you need to make that connection. Or am I just waking up with this screaming child trying to keep them fed or am I shaping a soul to know God for all of eternity? Am, am I doing expense reports and time cards for uh, this, this group of individuals I'm managing? Or am I 
working to create well-being and help them flourish and make a difference in the world? Am I just showing up to class and trying to turn in assignments on time? Or am I equipping myself to go out and bear God's image in the world? See, there's work underneath the work. And next week, the whole message is going to be about making that connection. I invite you to come back. And I don't know, if, if you're unmotivated, maybe that's part of what you need to do. And it doesn't happen by accident. I invite you uh, to do that. So we can become unmotivated. We can also become unbalanced. And this is kind of the opposite extreme. We can become unbalanced in our work. So let's look at this riddle again that the teacher gives us. He said, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So he gives us this picture of two fistfuls of work. So when your hands are full, are you able to grab the doorknob and open it or pick up that thing that you need to pick up? No, you can't, right? Because your hands are full. And what kind of person lives with a life and a, a mind and a calendar that's so full that they don't have room for anything else? We have a word for this. It's workaholic, right? It's workaholic. You know, we tend to, um, we tend to actually praise this. Like, I think in the church world, at least in our Western culture, our, you know, kind of Puritan work ethic culture here in the Midwest, we kind of excuse that sin often, and it is a sin, just as much as laziness is. Why, why is that? Like, when you walk up to someone and you go, how are you? There are usually two responses you get. First, I'm good, even if they're not. Like, really? Are you really good? But we don't ask that because we don't have time. Uh, but the second response is, oh, I'm busy. I'm busy. And, and what are we saying when we're saying, oh, good, I'm busy, but I'm good? What we're saying is, help me, I'm super overwhelmed. And also, don't ask me to do anything for you because I don't have time, right? Let's be real. Uh, and what we're also saying, I'm busy, and, and it's kind of like a badge of honor for us. It's kind of like if you're not busy, you're, you're not worth the space that you're taking up in the universe. That's, that's kind of what, what it means. Because when I'm busy, it means that people need me, and I have places to go and things to do, uh, and I'm in demand, so I'm, I'm worth, I have a worthwhile existence. Busyness. Busy people are the kind of people that get things done because they're more concerned about efficiency than priorities, typically. Do you have workaholic tendencies? Uh, I'm going to ask you some questions. You can just kind of like check through them in your brain. Are you often irritable and impatient with people? Does your work ever affect your sleep? Uh, do you regularly check email in the bathroom? Okay, just so dude, you're not that important. Okay, we can wait until you're done, all right? Don't raise your hand if that's you. Uh, do you feel guilty about the lack of time that you spend with friends and family? Uh, for those of you who are Christ followers, is prayer a priority in your life? Like, atheism is the religion of the busy. Like, you know that, right? Do people describe you as type A? Oh, they're just type A. You know what type A is oftentimes? Type A people are people who have learned to cover, oftentimes, not in every case, they're people who have learned to cover their insecurities with their achievements. 
and we're chasing after something in our work that it can actually never give us. And that's why the writer, the, the teacher here says it's chasing after the wind because people with two fistfuls of work, not only do they not have the time or energy left over for God and their families and their health, but they're idolizing work because they're believing somehow that through their achievements, their, their existence is gonna be made uh, worthwhile, is gonna be validated. And all we're doing, you guys, is we're sowing fig leaves together in the garden, trying to cover up our insecurities and our inadequacies. And it grieves the heart of God. So I don't know, maybe if that's you, it's, it's me, by the way. Um, it, if that's you, then maybe what you need to do is, is detach your work from your worth. Like you're not what you do. You are not what you do. You are not how you fail. You're more than that. The value statement of your life isn't the accumulation of uh, credentials and achievements on your resume. The value statement of your life has been written in Jesus' blood. And that's what we have to come to terms with if we're gonna move forward in our places of work. So the teacher shows us these two responses, these two sins, these two patterns that we fall into, uh, but he also shows us a way to begin moving forward in this riddle. He said, I don't know if you caught it, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So it's not this, right? It's not this, it's, it's this. One handful with tranquility. What's he talking about? He's talking about an approach to work that comes from a place of rest, a place of, of margin. He said, that, that is better. That is better, but how do we get there? It's a great idea, uh, I think in theory and, and hypothetically, but how do we actually get there? Like, how do we... How do we motivate ourselves enough to put our hearts into work when we keep getting disappointed? And how do we throw off this kind of ens enslavement of achievement and self-worth? He doesn't answer it in Ecclesiastes. To get to the answer, to, to get to the answer of this paradox, we need to go to another wise Jewish teacher many years later who in, invited us into something new, a whole new way of life. And this is Jesus. So we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. You can turn there or scroll there. Verse 28. And so these are the words of Jesus. Jesus, the first century Jewish rabbi who had throngs of people keeping him endlessly busy. He was this traveling preacher who often worked for days at a time without stopping to eat. He was a carpenter. His father was a carpenter. Was, his rough hands and his sinewy arms had, had, had hewn tools and furniture out of these tough desert trees. Like He knew the pain of work. He knew the value of work. But he has incredible, profound wisdom for us here. He said in verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. What's Jesus telling us here? Is he telling us that I'm going I'm to make work easy for you? No, he's not. He's not removing the pain of work. He's giving us two things. I don't know if you caught it. The first thing he said that he'll give us is rest. It's that open hand. But not just rest, right? Because we're not, this is not the wise way to work. He also gives us a burden. He gives us a yoke, but it's a different kind of yoke. It's not one that drives us to exhaustion. It's one where we engage with our God-ordained call to do good, valuable, fulfilling uh, work but from a place of deep rest in Jesus. But how do we do that? How do we do that? So if we were to jump back to, um, to Genesis chapter three, we would catch up with Adam and Eve as they're leaving the garden, as they've been expelled from the garden and given what they wanted, which is life without God. And they're in their fig leaves, maybe holding them together or whatever. But then God does something really profound. In Genesis 3, 21, it said that God made for Adam and Eve garments of skins, animal skins, and clothed them. So what are the verbs that God did? He made something for them. He worked for them. And what was his work? His work was to cover their shame, not with fig leaves, but with the skin of an innocent animal. We don't think about this, maybe, but something had to die. Something innocent had to give its life so that they could experience life outside of God's protection, but still with an element of God's grace. And guys, that's what Jesus does for us on the cross. In his innocence, his, his work on the cross is this innocent sacrifice that he has offered to us as a permanent covering for our sin and our shame and our brokenness and frustration. He's done the work that we could never do so that we can do our work from a place of deep rest. It's how the gospel transforms our work. So now what? Can work work again? Can work work again? So there are two things that we're gonna talk about here as we wrap up. So first, we must let the pain of work drive us to Jesus. See, a lot of us, we feel the pain of work and, and we're driven away from Jesus. We actually spend less time in his word. We spend less time with his people. We spend more time in hobbies and distractions and pleasures that drown out the pain but don't actually get to the root of it. But Jesus says, hey, are you weary? Are you tired? Are you worn out, overwhelmed, frustrated? Come to me. Come to me and I'll give you rest. See, we, we, we kind of, ex we have this expectation of God oftentimes that he's gonna remove the pain. He doesn't say that. But he does give us incredible power to be able to cope. You know that coping is one of the most underrated things uh, in our culture. And we don't talk about it enough because we're a quick fix culture. Like I took these two pills and if they don't fix my problem in an hour, I'm moving on to the next solution. But God says, no, 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 wait. You can actually go a really, really long way in a difficult season by leaning on Jesus, by leaning on his word. 
by hanging out with his people. See, often we pray and we expect God to like airlift us out of our problems. And sometimes he does that and we call that a miracle, but more often what he does is he, he airdrops in and he journeys with us through our difficult season. See, he's invited us to rest. And this rest he's inviting us to is not like a metaphorical thing. It's like actual rest, you guys. And, and that doesn't happen by accident for those of us who are busy. It happens on purpose. And some of us need to put rest, Sabbath, on our calendars. And we need to get people around us who are going to hold us accountable to that. Because it does not happen by accident. So that's the first thing we need to do. Is let the, the pain of our work drive us to Jesus. The second thing we have to do is trade our burdens for his. Trade our burdens. So some of us here are frustrated with work. We're ready to give up. Some of us have been punching in and just kind of going through the motions for a long time. Stop. Trade in your frustration and your apathy and your laziness for Jesus' burden. It's good. Connect the work with the work underneath the work. Some of us uh, have, have been crushed by stress and anxiety. We haven't slept in God knows how long and we're worn out and we're tired and we've been avoiding our families. We've been avoiding hard conversations and, and we've just been hoping one day that once we retire or whatever that everything's gonna get better. But Jesus is inviting us to take on his good burden. To do the work of resting. <laughs> so some of us need to repent. We do. Uh, and some of us need to turn in our burdens and take Christ's burden on. Let's pray as we close. Jesus, thank you for your wisdom. And thank you, Lord, for not just pointing to the answer, but Lord, that you actually became the answer for us. And, and Jesus, as we often do, we hear things that feel profound in the moment and then we walk away and we forget. I pray that we wouldn't do that. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would uh, do the follow-up work that you need to do till the, the hard ground in our hearts. Help us to come to terms with the ways that we have been responding illegitimately to the pain of our work. I uh, pray that we would surround ourselves with uh, God-fearing people who would help us to shape our souls, our families, and our calendars so that we can uh, do the things you've called us to do since the very beginning, even though we're still under the curse of sin. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.